Are you looking to scale up your healthcare solution in partnership with leading healthcare companies? Companies such as Blue Shield of California, Cigna Healthcare, Evernorth Health Services, Optum Labs, and United Health Group, which together have over 200 million members. Applications are open for the 2022 UCSF Roseman ADAPT program. ADAPT awardees will receive $100,000 cash support and connections to payers for startups developing breakthrough technologies to improve healthcare efficiency. To apply, visit rosamaninstitute.org. We are very focused on more vulnerable, at-risk, Medicaid, duals, people who can't afford to download an app and push a button and get on-demand healthcare. That is not who we are targeting. We are focused more on the underserved, and that's where we think we can have the most outsized impacts and what we're, uh, you know, we spend our time thinking about. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Many years ago, Dan Trigup's parents came to the U.S. from the city of Odessa in what's now Ukraine. They settled in New Jersey, but his grandmother lived by herself in Queens. And Dan's experience being her caretaker and connection to the outside world helped create his career. Today, Dan is the CEO and co-founder of MedArrive. There, he works to help vulnerable patients get essential care in their homes. He's also worked at Uber Health and Lyft and has a lot of interesting things to say about the industry he spent more than 15 years in. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Christine. Oh, it's, a, it's so great. It's, I don't know where you're based, but at least today in San Francisco, we have a nice warm weather. Uh, I am in the Bay Area, just on the peninsula, and it is a beautiful day. Well, you get a, you always get the warm weather there, better than us here in San Francisco. But um, I, I thought I've been, you know, thinking about a lot of, you know, I was looking at a lot of your experience, past experience. You've done quite a lot in the past. Um, maybe uh, if you can tell us your journey, how you started your, how you transitioned to do a lot of healthcare um, in being where you are today at BetterRife. Happy to. Uh, and yes, it's been quite the journey, a lot of uh, twists and turns, ups and downs, and um, uh, pretty, pretty fun to be where we are today and working on, on MetaRive. But a little bit about my background, something I always like to share with folks that I think defines who I am is a big part of, of, of me as a person. Um, I'm first-generation American. I come from a family of immigrants, um, first person in my family born in the United States. Um, my family actually came from the former Soviet Union, uh, of all places, actually Ukraine. Uh, but at the time, they didn't know an independent Ukraine. It was, it was still part of uh, the USSR. Uh, and so my parents lived in Odessa, port city on the Black Sea uh, there, uh, which has been in the news for not, 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 the, not, not the most positive reasons recently. Uh, but my parents came here for a better life. I was very little um, and uh, immigrated to New York, New Jersey. I grew up on the East Coast. Um, and he always had that, I think, entrepreneurial spirit uh, and um, you know know what this country can afford people. And even for all our faults in, in this in, in this. Um, you know, in, in this society that we live in, I still firmly believe it is the best country in the world. And 
lot of people will give their lives uh, to, to live here, uh, all things considered. Uh, so very fortunate uh, that they moved here uh, when they did. And, and I think not only did I have that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, in the back of my mind, when it came to healthcare delivery, you know, I had a unique experience growing up because uh, I lived in New Jersey with my parents. My grandmother lived by herself in an apartment in, in Queens, New York. Um, and the only time I, my grandmother would leave her apartment uh, was when my father and I would make the you know, 45 minute drive to, to go see her uh, and help her with her you know, activities of daily living, help her get to a doctor's appointment or to leave the house. Um, and so, you know, really saw the opportunity for, you know, what other solutions or what other things could we do to inc- improve her quality of life, um, and really being her primary caretaker. So, um, you know, I, uh, grew up pretty much on the East coast. Um, after college, I got into consulting and investment banking and then at my investment bank, I did a lot of work in healthcare, um, spent three years working with a long-term acute care hospital in Southern California, worked closely with that management team and saw the operations side of, of healthcare. Uh, we sold that business to Kindred Healthcare. And then I also spent a lot of time working with a company called A Place for Mom, uh, which is at the time and probably still is the largest online lead gen company for elder care. So if you do a Google search today for senior living, nine times out of 10, you'll land on A Place for Mom website. Um, so kind of saw that business. Um, it was also interesting, everything kind of coming full circle. My father-in-law, who I've now known for over 15 years, as long as I've known my wife, he runs one of the largest privately owned home care businesses here in Northern California. So basically, it's a caregiving agency helping folks with ADLs, non-medical home care, mostly private duty, um, and really saw him build a very successful business from from scratch um, and always admired what he was able to achieve and also saw the opportunities around providing quality care into the home. Um, during my investment banking days and because of that experience, I left um, and I started a company that was actually funded and it came out of Rock Health. Uh, we were in their fourth incubator class. For those of in your audience familiar with Rock Health, it was more of an incubator back then. Now it's more of a venture fund. Uh, but we built a company called Open Placement, which was basically hotels.com for post-acute care. So the idea was mom had a hip replacement at Stanford Hospital, now needs a sniff. The old way was here's a piece of paper to mom and the family. Good luck to you. Well, the family looks at it. Who's good? Who's bad? Who takes my insurance? Who's got a bed available? We automated that process. And unlike a place for mom, we had a qualified referral coming out of a hospital instead of a random lead off the internet because we partnered with hospitals uh, to leverage our tools for their patients. Um, and so had a good run there. We built that company from scratch, just an idea on a napkin. Uh, we ultimately sold that company to an EHR uh, called EnzoCare. Uh, and, and the website's still up and running. If you go to openplacement.com, it's, it's run by EnzoCare, which actually they got acquired not that long ago themselves. Um, so it was a really good run, good experience, building something from nothing. Um, and then I actually found myself at the intersection of rideshare and healthcare. Uh, so um, at the time, you know, rideshare was growing, and there was this company called Lyft that, you know, I, honestly, I never even took a Lyft until my my, my first interview at Lyft when I was uh, going to meet with them. That seems appropriate. <laughs> yes, uh, I figured I had to use it before I could even go in there for an interview. Um, which was kind of funny. Um, but anyways, we, uh, I was the first hire on their healthcare team. And in two and a half years at Lyft, we built a half a billion dollar business around non-emergency medical transportation. Most people don't know this, but uh, the government, CMS, spends $6 billion a year for Medicare Medicaid services for purely transportation. And so we built tools at Lyft where uh, a state Medicaid agency, a health plan, a hospital like UCSF could order a ride for somebody who needed to get medical care 
And that ride was paid for them by their health plan or by the state Medicaid agency. Um, and you wouldn't need a Lyft app or know anything about Lyft. It was all done for them by a care navigator or a care advocate. Um, so we built a quite a successful business around that. Uh, and the vast majority of the rides in non-emergency medical transportation are what are known as ambulatory curb-to-curb rides, which were mostly being done by taxis. Did that for a while. Um, I guess you can say, lucky for me in California, uh, non-competes are not enforceable. Uh, so I went over to Uber uh, and I ran the healthcare team at Uber for a year and a half. Uh, and Uber just operates at a massive scale compared to Lyft. 60 countries, 10,000 cities, 15 million rides a day. Uh, and so the impact and reach is far greater. And it does a lot more than just move people. Uh, so I helped grow the healthcare vertical at Uber. Um, not only did we do transportation, we did meal delivery uh, and grocery delivery. Many MA plans as a supplemental benefit offer meal and grocery delivery to members. Um, and then we also did prescription delivery. We integrated with pharmacy management systems and allowed an Uber courier to do a same day uh, script delivery. Had a really good run there. Uh, and it was a, fun, a really interesting and unique experience. And I saw what the power of a platform can do in healthcare like an Uber or Lyft. Uh, but ultimately, Uber and Lyft are not healthcare companies. Far from it uh, is the truth. And if you look at their stock price these days, um, they got a lot of other issues to worry about other than healthcare. Uh, and I always believe that they can do so much in the vertical and still can, and I'm sure they will. Uh, but lots of other competing priorities. And a lot of my time at Uber was fighting my boss and going to Dara and asking for more headcount and resources. And honestly, I, I got tired of that and wanted to get back to building and having a bigger impact and getting back to my entrepreneurial roots. Um, so I left uh, and we started MetaRive about two years ago. So long answer to your question. And I know I covered a lot of ground, but let me maybe pause for a second and uh, pass it back to you. No, no, that's uh, quite a fun ride that you have, quite an adventure. And um, you had the chance to build something from scratch and within you know, something that's a small startup to have it acquired and then building something within a larger organization. And uh, it sounds like you have a lot of fun along the way. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what is MetaRife. Why, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, the fact that being an Uber, you get tired of asking for resources, but there must be something in MetaRife that make you feel like, oh, this is something that I want to build. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the biggest tailwind for us was COVID and certainly the shift in consumer expectations of care coming to them. And then also a fundamental belief that healthcare, more broadly speaking, is moving into the home. And I saw a really unique opportunity to power care services into the home through a unique model and infrastructure that we've built. But, you know, just to step back for a second, and I think COVID has, again, really been the accelerant here. 
If you ask me what does a hospital look like in 10, 15 years, I truly believe the hospital of the future is an OR, an ER, and an ICU. And the vast majority, if not everything else, uh, will move into the home one way or another. The other thing that we've learned is that telehealth has been going on for decades. You know, telehealth is not a novel concept. Um, but certainly during COVID, it has been at the forefront. You know, at the peak of COVID, we saw about 60% utilization of telehealth services. You know, since, co- you know, as things have been coming down slightly with COVID, you know, we're probably around 20, 30% utilization. But as, a, as we like to say at Metarite, there's no humanity in telehealth. There's no physical contact. There's only so much you can do with a virtual care visit. And you always will need that hands-on care, whether it's point-of-care testing, doing something as simple as a blood draw, urine collection, you know, any you're always going to need that hands-on care that you're never going to be able to solve purely with telehealth. So we at MedArrive, we want to be a bridge between on-site clinical care and pure telehealth. We want to be the eyes and ears of a provider through a telehealth platform. uh, And we want to do it in a very cost-effective and efficient manner. The last thing I'd say, just to kind of reiterate some of these points, you know, when hospitals were first created in the U.S., it was really around end-of-life care. You know, the concept was you would go there when, um, when you're at end-of-life um, for you know, palliative care and, and really that end-of-life treatment. And, and it's really shifted over the last you know, decade plus, and it's really been a primary point of care. And when I look at my parents, you know, when they left the Soviet Union, this concept of going into a hospital or going into a doctor's office was absolutely foreign. You know, why would I want to go in somewhere into an office where people are sick? And the idea of house calls and doctors on demand was, was the norm. And I think we're going to fundamentally see that shift over the next couple of years. We've already started to see that. Uh, McKinsey actually came out with a report just recently. And what they said is $265 billion worth of care services. That's around 25% of the total cost of care for Medicare fee-for-service and Medicare Advantage beneficiaries will shift into the home by 2025. And I can give you play other stats. We see this as the future, and this is at the core uh, behind what MetaRive is about. Uh, 2025, that's just around the corner, actually, <laughs> when you think about it. So can you tell us more, because you mentioned you're, you're the in-between to bring um, the brick-and-mortar and the telehealth, like yes. how, what, what is it? How do you do it? Yeah. And you know, there's, there's lots of companies out there trying to, in, in our space for sure. And, you know, I talked about some numbers. It's not a winner take all. It's not one company who's going to do everything. How we do it and how we are fundamentally different is that we're a three-sided marketplace, a three-sided infrastructure. There's three key stakeholders who we build and solve for. The first is a patient or a health plan member. That is our ultimate end user and who we design everything for. The second component of our infrastructure is what we internally call our demand partners, or essentially our customers. So what we want to do is we want to build tools primarily for value-based payers and providers. So in order of, of the size of our customers today, our customers are managed Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, and ACOs, large physician groups. That is who we build our solutions for. So just to be crystal clear, MetaRive is not a consumer business. We're not um, spending money on marketing or customer acquisition. You're not going to see our vehicles driving around. We're not going to have physical infrastructure in markets. Instead, we want to build tools for these demand partners, these health plans or healthcare providers, and be their platform, their extension into the home. So in many of our programs, we never even mentioned the word MetaRive. We essentially white label the entire experience. 
everything from engaging with their members or patients. We do it as uh, on behalf of them, our partner, to our field providers who go into the home. And many a times they're wearing clothing representing our health plan or our customer. Which brings me to the third piece of our platform, which is the most unique differentiator for us. We today have a national network of what we call field providers. These are the people going into the home providing services. And at the core of our field providers are EMS professionals. So we strongly believe that EMTs and paramedics are one of the most underutilized resources in healthcare. They're very cost-effective. They're everywhere in rural communities and large metropolitan areas. And they're a highly trained, skilled, and scoped workforce where in their day job, they're not practicing to that full scope of training. We know the challenges that the pandemic has caused around staffing shortages, in particular around nursing. You know, we're seeing nurses retire at staggering rates right now. Um, We're also seeing uh, more than 20% of hospital nurses saying they intend to leave their jobs in, in the not too distant future. And this is just recent data that's come out. EMTs and paramedics, they are so good at providing the level of services that we focus on at MetaRive. And they're everywhere and they're not always fully utilized. There a lot of times there's a lot of downtime in their day. And a typical EMT and paramedic works three 12 hour shifts a week. That's a full time job. So they have those extra days to give back. And then finally, we provide telehealth. Telehealth is core to what we do if we need physician oversight. So an EMT or paramedic cannot prescribe or diagnose, they can't do HCC coding in the home, but we can do that with physician oversight through telehealth. So that's the high level concept of what we've built. And Really, the key of it is more of a B2B approach, really partnering with these large enterprises. And the last thing I mentioned is the populations we serve. We are very focused on more vulnerable, at-risk, Medicaid, duals, people who can't afford to download an app and push a button and get on-demand healthcare. That is not who we are targeting. We are focused more on the underserved, and that's where we think we can have the most outsized impacts and what we're, uh, you know, we spend our time thinking about. And so uh, give us some, give me some understanding about like wh- uh, why the providers want your service. How is that helping them provide better care to their patient population and for the payer side as well? Yep. So it really comes down to two two things. One, either driving down the total cost of care for a population and providing more efficient care and avoiding primarily unnecessary ED utilization, which is a significant cost, especially for Medicaid and duals. You know, I've actually been on dozens of our visits. We do a lot of work in Texas today. I I was in Houston a couple months ago. And the population we serve, our partner in Texas, one of our partners is Molina, a large national health plan, and we do a lot of work with them in Texas. They have a population, Medicaid duals, who are going to the ED two, three, sometimes four to six times a month and using the ED as their PCP, as their primary care physician, because that's all they know. They, they call 911 to go see a doctor, to get a med refill, to get durable medical equipment, whatever that might be, and that's going to be absolutely avoided. So we partner with that, the health plan there. We work with this high-risk population, and we bring services to them in a very cost-effective manner, and we provide longitudinal care, typically over a 90-day window where we see these populations two to three times a week to start and try to taper them off over time. But we go into the home. We help close any care gaps. A lot of times it's chronic condition management, so your usual suspects around COPD, CHF, diabetes management, 
What we also know is healthcare is very difficult for these populations and, and for most, for everybody, myself included. And it's a lot more than just seeing a doctor. A lot of it is SDOH uh, type uh, matters. So helping with meals, transportation, durable medical equipment, education. And so we also provide case management and we have a team of care advocates that are there beyond just our in-home visit, connecting them to resources and again, avoiding those unnecessary visits to the ED. The second, I mentioned there's two. The second area of focus for us is how do we help health plans and providers with patient retention, engagement, and also driving additional revenue sources by closing as primarily HEDIS gaps and, and doing HCC coding for them in the home. So as another example, we work with Bright Healthcare in North Carolina, and that population is ACA members, newly enrolled, bronze, silver members, typically coming from Medicaid plans, first time having a true managed care offering, and not necessarily familiar with what's available to them. So with these populations, we go into the home, we do an annual wellness visit, connect them to a provider through telehealth, close any care gaps that we possibly can for the plan. And then almost do a, kind of a welcome visit to the plant. Here's the resources allotted to you, are available to you. Show them how to access information and essentially provide a much better experience in the home and learn a lot more. I'd say that's a key thing. We learn so much about these populations when we serve them in their homes, as opposed to within the four walls of a clinic or a hospital. Right. Because they spend most of their time at home rather than in the hospital. So maybe you can segue a little bit different um, to... Um, your uh, personal journey, your experience at Uber, at Lyft, and the first step, the first company that you started that was acquired. What are the things that you learned from those experiences that help you build the MetaRive? Do you do things differently or do you, it's like, oh, this is a good, good framework. I'm just going to copy it exactly and then move forward. Well, I've learned a lot in every single step of the journey, and I think um, probably learned more from the failures than the successes, no question about it. Um, and I think you know everything I've done from uh, delivering pizzas when I was in high school to uh, selling insurance when I was in college out of my dorm room to you know investment banking and consulting before uh, my first healthcare startup uh, has taught me something along the way. I think you know consulting investment banking gave me a great foundation around just basic analysis and um, you know, financial modeling and, and more critical thinking. Um, and I think, you know, when I went and did my first startup, you know, I think a lot of times we were a little bit ahead of the time. And what I also learned is that technology can't solve everything. And I think many entrepreneurs fall into the trap of, especially in healthcare, of just throwing tech at the solution. And frankly, uh, it's still so services driven. Um, and we create human interactions every day. We can't forget that. So we've done thousands of visits at MetaRive and, you know, close to tens of thousands of human connections we create between our patients, our field providers, our case management team. And so um, there, there, there's always going to be that human touch. And, um, you know, healthcare is so complex with many stakeholders. And uh, again, technology is not going to solve everything. Now, it can be a great enabler and, and really uh, augment the experience and provide a lot of value, but it, it can't do everything. So I think, um, you know, my experiences at Uber and Lyft really opened my eyes to what a platform can do uh, and what a marketplace infrastructure, especially nowadays with you know mobile technology and GPS tracking and um, the ability to bring services to people, uh, was extremely eye-opening, especially in, uh, in in healthcare. Now, 
taking a millennial to a bar on a Friday night in, in, in an Uber is a lot different than bringing on you know care into the home um, and has its own nuances. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles. There's lots of uh, legal policy issues to keep in mind. And also finding the right reimbursement pathways, especially when you're dealing with uh, Medicaid and Medicare product, uh, uh, payer sources. So, you know, I think uh, every step in the journey, um, you know, from my early banking and consulting days to, to Uber and Lyft, um, you know, has really shown me how to build that foundation and then has also shown me the opportunity for innovation, innovation and the opportunity for a market where you're connecting uh, you know, highly trained, skilled, and scoped labor to those in need. There is an immense opportunity for impact and to create better efficiency and do it in a very cost-effective manner. So, do you have a framework to identify like that is the need? Like, you know, using the technology, how to make it work? I mean, just when you think about Med Arrive, how do you identify this is a opportunity that has not been addressed or that you can? come up with a solution that can solve that particular problem. Yeah, so I think that framework, and especially in the early days, it really comes down to proving the concept as quickly and efficiently as possible with little technology or little development, uh, per se, that, 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 that you have to do, and really just getting it out there. And I think when you know my co-founder Ina, you know she she wrote the original business plan, uh, and then I certainly helped iterate on it with her. The key thing was getting it out into the market and testing the concept, and also learning from all the key stakeholders. So in the EMS space, you know we had some really strong early advisors who, you know, what we're doing at Medarive is known as community paramedicine or mobile integrated healthcare. It's been around for for a long time. It's not a novel concept but basically upskilling a paramedic or an EMT. And then CMS recently passed something called ET3, which is to treat and triage in place. And the idea is when somebody calls 911, to allow paramedics and EMTs to treat in the home if a true hospitalization is not necessary or a true visit to the ER is not, if it's non-emergent, to keep people in home um, and to drive down costs. Because you know I've taken an ambulance in my life uh, a two mile ride cost me five grand out of pocket. It is absolutely absurd when you think about that. Um, and so there's, there's certainly a lot of, um, push to keep people in the home. And so for us in the early days it was really around learning from stakeholders, getting feedback from, you know, the three sides of our marketplace, our field provider from patients and those that we serve. And then ultimately our customers, the health plans and healthcare providers, and then trying to quickly iterate and, tr- and quickly dr- uh, drive volume essentially and to prove that people would be willing to pay for a solution like this and prove that there's an ROI because if you can't do those two things you know there's no point of, of, of trying to go any further um, if you can't make the unit economics work and, and show that there is value that you're driving share with us your co-founding stories how do you guys meet up and how, how do you find like this is the right people that I want to be working with? Or spending a lot of hours together. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty interesting story and a little bit unique, not not your typical one. So when I was at Uber, an organization out of New York reached out to me called Redesign Health. Um, and I never heard of them. And there's actually a really good article in the Wall Street Journal about them a couple of weeks ago, talking about their model and their business. But essentially, Redesign Health is a venture fund. You know, They've raised quite a bit of capital. And what's unique about them is now they have over 100 people that work there full time from healthcare and outside of healthcare. 
who come up with their own ideas or they see trends that they like in healthcare. And if they like it enough, they'll seed fund it and hire the founding team. And then the company's off to the races. And the one thing, if you go on their website that you know, I think really speaks for itself is the people that they have that, that work there. So for example, Kira Wampler is a venture chair there. She was the former chief marketing officer of Lyft. Uh, Jeffrey Levick, the former chief revenue officer of Spotify. Uh, Missy Krasner, she helped uh, lead uh, Amazon's healthcare business. You know, these are people that work there full time. And then my my board member from Redesign is Bill Sullivan. And Bill's been in healthcare for over 35 years, helped start Oxford Health Plan. Um, he's the chairman of the board of Privia Health, which just went public. Um, so, so anyways, they approached me with this concept, which didn't even have a name at the time, and something that they were working on internally. And I was really intrigued. And through that experience, I met my co-founder, Ina. Uh, and I couldn't have possibly picked a better co-founder. So Ina is our chief operating officer. Her background was finance and private equity. She was also early Blue Apron. So she ran the supply chain at Blue Apron from Series B to IPO, managed the PL north of $100 million, uh, had, a, had a really strong operations background. And she left Blue Apron and was actually one of the first partners at Redesign. So she helped launch a few companies at Redesign. And then she, given what was happening with COVID and trends of moving care to the home, she wrote the original business plan for this concept. And around that time, she reached out to me and Redesign reached out to me with this idea. And I thought, given my background and my experience, it was a no-brainer. And I fit so well with Ina. I thought our skill sets complemented each other uh, very well. We spent a bunch of time together. Um, and then I decided to leave Uber and really lean in full-time to this venture uh, and working closely with Ina now um, for the last two years. So I know I'm running short on time, but I um, want to um, ask you one last question. What are the things that, some things about you that I can't see from your LinkedIn that you can share that would be really fun and interesting and inspiring? Oh, wow. You put me on the spot there. Um, you know, honestly, I think the biggest thing is, uh, that's not on my LinkedIn for sure is, is my family life, um, and everything outside of work. I think, um, you know, I, I definitely think that especially in today's society, we, we focus way too much on, on work and life, uh, outside of, you know, family and, um, you know, children and, and, um, you know, more the personal side. And so, you know, I think I have two children, uh, I have, uh, soon to be nine-year-old and a soon to be six-year-old. Um, and you know, that's what really ultimately inspires me and that drives me, uh, to, to work hard every single day. Um, and, um, you know, always just trying to want to make a better life for them than what my parents made for me. And then also having them appreciate, you know, where they've come from. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm a strong believer in that you make your own luck, uh, and the harder you work, the more luck you have. And, you know, I, I actually recently had the opportunity uh, to meet Tom Brady. Um, and uh, I think ultimately he, he was pretty inspiring for me to meet somebody like that because, well, first I hated him growing up because I always would root for the New York Jets, uh, who they would mm -hmm. always be. Uh, but I have the utmost appreciation for somebody like that who's literally, literally the best at what he does. And whether you're the best uh, pianist in the world, whether you're the best at ballet, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But for you to be the best at what you do, and I, I view him as certainly the, arguably the best to do what he does, um, you know, I learned a lot from that experience. And I, I think one of the biggest things I learned when I heard him talk and I got a chance to talk to him for a few minutes is that you make your own luck. And there are so many lucky breaks in his life to get to where he is today. 
but he was ready when those lucky breaks came about. And I think that mindset, uh, that, that mindset of making your own luck and, and working hard, but also having perspective and putting family first, um, is, is really important. I think to be successful, you have to be uh, a good person. You have to be, you know, physically, uh, in a good position mentally, um, with your family. I think in order to be successful in everything else you do, whether it's, you know, in work or other endeavors. Um, and I think that's been a big part of, of who I am and you know, certainly something that you, you wouldn't get from my, from my LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, family story. I think, um, sometimes, um, uh, where did I read somewhere? It's not sacrifice when you just do the work and sacrificing your family. I think it's more about work. It's like what you get and your children, your family, it's, um, should not be taken for granted. Yes. No, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, appreciate your time. Christine, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.